production. Known as the mind architect, Peter Crone specialises in revealing the limiting beliefs and subconscious narratives that dictate and shape behaviour, health, relationships and performance. Peter Crone's signature mix of high seriousness, sweeping perspective and cheekiness makes him an absolute pleasure to be around. When talking about the past, Peter says what happened happened and couldn't have happened any other way because it didn't. This conversation is an exploration of many things, crafting your future with intention, raising consciously aware children and the beauty of heartbreak. The beauty of having your heart quote-unquote broken is that now as a human being, you have the opportunity, I don't want to say you have to, but you have the opportunity to learn to love. Because if it weren't for that, you don't have to learn the capacity to love the part of you that is currently suffering. So it's still a gift. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Peter Crone has worked with some of the biggest athletes, actors and musicians in the world to help them remove all suffering and discover true freedom. This conversation is about my favourite subject, the hard-wrought journey to authenticity and self-actualization, widening our aperture on life so we can effectively and consistently grow, learn and transform. Sharing space with Peter was an absolute pleasure. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did recording it. Peter Crone, you are known as the mind architect. You say, I specialise in revealing the limiting beliefs and subconscious narratives that dictate and shape behaviour, health, relationships and performance. What drove you to do this sort of work? Um, I mean, I guess it's a uh, the sort of necessity being the... Um, mother of invention, right? So meaning my own needs to begin with. So I certainly had a bit of a trying childhood, like we all go through our things. And uh, that led to a cascade of events as I became older and a teen and then 20s and you fall in love and, you know, all the heartbreaks and just the daily trials and tribulations that we go through. And I was always just passionately curious about why humans do what we do and why we tend to self-sabotage a lot. Why do people struggle? Why do people have all of the the, the, the litany of um, emotions from depression to anger to anxiety and relationship woes? And um, I guess for whatever reasons, my gift is to be able to dissect and unpack some of these primal patterns that we have as humans. And I was just you know, blessed to one day about 20 years ago, see almost like the matrix, everything that I'd been stuck within and why I'd had any kind of suffering and um, discovered complete freedom on the other side in a way that I didn't even know one was available and two I'd never experienced. So that really started the journey. What was that moment where you realized that? Um, So I had been dating somebody uh, who at that time in my life, I thought was, I don't want to say love of my life, that was a little bit melodramatic, but there was certainly a beautiful you know, connection and it was someone that meant a lot to me and I did see a potential future together. And um, 
one day she turned around and said, you know, you love me too much. And um, she left and I was like, well, that doesn't really make sense. <laughs> you know, that sounds like a good problem to have, you know, but she was more intuitive than I gave her credit for because the love that I was giving, albeit I was even then before I'd sort of had my own awakening of sorts. Um, I was still a very loving, sensitive, caring, generous, you know, guy, but the love did have an undercurrent of attachment. And that was because of my own fear. My parents had died when I was very young. And so she filled in the gap of something of worth to me that now, because of previous hurt, I didn't want to experience again, meaning loss, mm. right? So in the relationship, albeit I was incredibly, as I said, loving and caring, and I, I really helped her a lot with some personal issues she was going through. Um, you know, I was just scared of losing her, which no one would begrudge me, you know, uh, orphaned, I was an only child. But nonetheless, um, so when she left, I went into this sort of, uh, typical spiral. I couldn't sleep. I lost weight. I was calling every friend under the sun in terms of like, you know, advice, how do you get it back? And, um, then for whatever reasons, like, you know, Dharma, karma, like the divine intervention, I was sitting at my desk in a very small, probably 200 square foot rent control, little bedroom. And, um, I suddenly realized I had all of these questions that were keeping me up at night. Like, will I meet her again? Will I see her again? Is she dating somebody else? Am I ever going to meet anyone again? Like all of these questions that were like gnawing at me, you know, this constant rumination. And in one swell, foul swoop, I got the answer to all of them. And it was three words. I don't know. And it was so prophetic and so profound because what I realized at that moment is I've never known. No one knows. The very nature of any kind of future conversation is founded in uncertainty. We don't know what the hell is going to happen. Yeah. And certainly you look at what's going on in the world right now. When is this going to end? When we, you know, all of this, all of the uncertainty is creating anxiety. We don't know. So that was one aspect. But the profound part also was that I was for the first time in my life, okay, not knowing. And this cascade of peace and freedom just went through every cell of my body in a way that I'll never forget. And um, that, that was the moment. And I truly, literally became a different human being. And what was so profound, it gets a little better in terms of the story, within 15 minutes of me having that moment, my phone rings. And back then, you know, showing my age a little, cell phones weren't so popular, but, you know, I had my land, landline. And my phone rings on my desk and I pick it up and it was this girl who I hadn't spoken to for over a month. But, you know, the craving in me mm. was like, oh, I want to hear from her. And the sort of desperate men doing desperate things, hoping to hear from her. Now, the conversations leading up to that moment prior to, you know, the, the last time we spoke was all me waiting to hear something. Oh, I, you know, I'm coming back or I miss you or whatever. And none of that. So and then. Five, six weeks have gone by. Now my phone rings within 15 minutes of me energetically shifting mm. at my core. And it's her. And she's crying now saying, I miss you so much. So to me, that was, you know, without getting too into the esoteric realm, yeah. that was a direct reflection of entanglement theory in quantum physics, where I had literally suddenly become available because I wasn't too worried or scared about losing something, in this case, her. And that made space for her to show up. Because she did love me and vice versa. But I was too busy trying not to lose her whilst I was in the relationship. So, 
Um, so yeah, it was a pretty pivotal moment. <laughs> Why does that happen? Because that's happened, and I suppose you were just touching on the whole entanglement theory with quantum physics as well, when it's yeah. the law of least resistance. When you just step back and you just allow things to happen, they happen, but that can be so hard. Why? Why is that? Well, I think in the way you phrase the question, when you step back, you know, it starts to beg the question of, well, who's the you stepping back versus the you that gets the outcome of whatever allowing, right? It starts to become a little schizophrenic. And to me, that's accurate, right? Because I talk about soul and ego. Mm. So we could say using my own personal example that in the egoic frame of mind, which was hurt and scared, I was worried about loss. That was one version of me. But in the absence of that ego, that's you saying when you step back. So we could say when the ego is out of the way, then there's perfect resonance and you're aligned with life such that things unfold effortlessly. And this is where a lot of my athletes will always use the expression of, you know, I wish I could get out of my own way. And so it's, it, again, it sort of strikes to this bipolarism, right? Like it's like I'm over here and I'm over here. And so, but to me, it's very, it's, it's, it's quite accurate to speak in these terms because there is that which we identify as our persona. And then there is that which is our true essence. And so when the persona, which is founded in fear and all the domination mm -hmm. and manipulation, and we're seeing in the world right now, all of these quote unquote leaders and experts are all being driven by ego, which is about control and you know dictatorship or whatever it is because of their own inadequacies, scarcities and fears. But once that's out of the way, without sounding too poetic, there is just freedom and love and alignment and harmony. And that's when life can then bring something to you in the absence of the constraint or the barrier, which is your self-perception. Yes. When you know that, and I, I've even experienced it for myself, where I'll be, I know yeah. when my ego is playing up and I'm, I'm like, come on, Sarah, tame that ego. Yeah. But you can't help <laughs> it. And you know the consequences mm -hmm. as well. What are the steps that we can take to try and move back into love and, and tame the ego so it doesn't seem to dominate us so much? Well, again, your question sort of speaks to it, which is rather than tame the ego, I would look at actually how do we step into love is we actually bring love to the ego. So it's a beautiful combination. If you want to step into love, well, then what the ego wants more than anything is love. One of the expressions I use, I say the ego doesn't want to be healed, it wants to be held. So really, what is the ego? It's a compilation of all of these constructs that we developed in our childhood where we feel inadequate, we feel insecure, we have some story of scarcity. And that fundamentally is a constraint, a limitation. And so when a child is in that mindset, what they're looking for more than anything is reassurance, which mm. we could put under the auspices of love, right? If a child walks into the house, they've fallen over, they scrape their knee or a friend made fun of them or something didn't go their way, they come in and they're upset. They might be crying. And a parent's, hopefully, a parent's instinctive reaction is to, to embrace them and say, oh, it's okay, come here, honey. It's okay, I love you, it's going to be fine. So it's really, for me, my work is helping people to step into the love, which is our essence, but bring it to the part of us that perhaps never really got that. And that's no slight in parents. You know, there would have been moments and in the arc of any human being's life, we're all going to come across our own feelings of inadequacy at some point. They're just going to get triggered. So, you know, to find that semblance of real inner peace and true freedom, the access is bring love to the part of us that doesn't feel that. Oh, that's so beautiful. Can you explain the purpose? You. <laughs> Can you explain the purpose of the subconscious mind 
and why taking control of it is so important? Um, I mean, the role is, you know, it's efficiency, right? I often use the example of learning to drive a car in the UK, which is where I grew up. We had to drive a manual, you know, and I think it's the same in Australia, whereas in America, they tend to be a little bit more, I don't want to say lazy, but convenient, you know, <laughs> when they drive the automatics, right? But, you know, when you're driving a, a manual with all the stick shift and you've got to put your foot on the clutch and not too much accelerator and, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot going on. So when you start and you're 17 or 18, whenever you're allowed to start learning, it's very overwhelming. And in terms of processing all of that, it can create a lot of stress and anxiety. And of course, when people go to take their driver's license test, you know, invariably that's a very stressful day for a, for a teenager. However, cut to two, three years later, and certainly as we become adults, someone is driving, uh, whether it's a manual or automatic, and you know they might be putting makeup on in the mirror whilst they're driving and holding a coffee and taking a you know the whole premise of being overwhelmed by the mechanics of driving a car is completely you know it's 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 a non-issue. I'm too busy getting ready for the meeting that I'm late for, but you're still operating this you know however many ton vehicle. So that subconscious patterning of how you learned to operate a car is useful in as much as you don't have to be in this constant stress of always processing something that's new. Um, so that's that's the important part, right? Like if you had to learn to walk every day, it would be like a pretty laborious day. You know, it's like, oh shit, you know, I've got to get up so early because <laughs> I got to spend the first four hours reminding myself how to walk. <laughs> so so it's it's beneficial at one level that we have these deep-seated patterns that we don't have to pay any regard to. We don't, you know, driving home when you leave the studio and you go home, at some level, you know, I don't want to scare people on the road, but Sarah doesn't have to pay attention because yeah. she knows how to get home, you know. So that's useful. Uh, in terms of control, again, I would just play with language a little bit. I think it's less about control and more a bit about responsibility mm. and awareness, right? Um, control, it sort of implies a little bit more of that egoic fear. Mm. You know, it's what we see, I think, in the world with all of these fabulous politicians and wanting to control everyone. But um, understanding your patterns is it gives you access to self-improvement of your habits, right? And instead of like um, constantly judging ourselves for what we do, if we could understand, oh, I can see that that, that tendency, that habit, that pattern got established from a very young age because let's take, for example, an executive who doesn't like doing public speaking. If they can see the pattern of anxiety and sweaty palms and sweaty armpits was all because at a young age, when they did a presentation as a 12-year-old, they were made a lot of fun of or the teacher mocked them. You can see the pattern that got established in the subconscious from a very young age of like, gosh, don't do anything that's going to make yourself look like an idiot, right? And so now seeing that can go, oh, okay, well, I was just 12 doing the best I could. And Perhaps I was in an environment that was a bit, you know, unfriendly and certainly not loving. So I wouldn't begrudge myself the fact that I got scared. But what does that mean now as a 44-year-old senior vice president who's presenting on a subject that I know a lot about, right? So then you can start to transcend the habit or establish a new one versus trying to control the one you don't want. Does that make sense? Yes, that does. 
You say you can't create the life of someone you don't yet believe to be. Yeah. How do we get get into being that person that we want to be? I love the fact you've done your research. You've got a couple of my quotes there. <laughs> Good girl. Yeah, you can't create the life of someone you don't yet believe yourself to be. It's a quote. So really what it's pointing to is if I take here, I've got one right here. If I take a pen, now this is blue. I don't know if you can see that, but it's, mm-hmm. it's got a blue cap. So it's telling me that there's blue ink in this. You know, I'm sure I staggered your audience with my rocket science knowledge there. (laughs) So, but anyway, the point is, if I started writing with this and it obviously is going to come out blue, if I get upset because I want red, I'm like, you know, what the hell is going on? That is a day-to-day reflection of how people don't get the results they want in life, whether it be the relationship, the career, the income, the physicality or the health, because this is designed to create blue. So likewise, we can't create the life of someone we don't yet believe ourselves to be. Well, whoever we are currently is going to inextricably create the life that is an extension of that idea of myself. Mm. So if somebody has a deep-seated feeling of inadequacy, like in lay terms, I'm not enough, I'm not good enough, then through that lens, it's, it's, uh, I'm not going to say impossible, but virtually impossible to create a life of any value, certainly any long lasting value, because the way you associate and the way you see yourself is somebody who's not enough. Yes. So it becomes a principle of physics, right? Invariably, the person who's not enough might become a perfectionist. They might even work harder to try and get the life they want. But even if they do amass some sort of external success, they're still going to be looking through the lens of inadequacy. So like many, you know, many people we know who do have a lot of wealth, but they still struggle Mm. with depression or they have shitty relationships or they're in terrible condition and got some sort of sickness, right? Because they're still being driven by the deeper identity. So until you shift that, then the external isn't going to match. You know, we talk about life just mirrors who we are. So that's why I love the expression where I came up with the quote is, if you want to have a different external life in the way that it manifests, then you literally have to be a different person. Mm. I, I was just started working with a new golfer recently, uh, like literally a week actually. And he sent me a text yesterday. He said, um, cause he'd been really scuffling and struggling and we had a very good first week together, which I love, you know, it's one of the things I love is like how powerful the mind is when you look through a different set of eyes, you, you get different outcomes. Yeah. And, uh, but his words were, he said, I genuinely feel like a completely different human being from nine days ago. Wow. What did you do with him? (laughs) You want all the trade secrets? (laughs) For people that feel that they're not enough, which I feel is every second person has that deep seated feeling of I'm not enough. If they're listening to this today, what are, what are some things that they can do to, to change that narrative? So similar to two things, one, recognize that that's not a truth. It's not who you are. It's a conversation. That's part of the subconscious patterning that got created from a young age. Now, you could have all sorts of evidence. Dad said this, mom said this, my older siblings were blah, blah, blah. My teacher in my first grade or fifth grade or was very mean or derogatory. That, that's the evidence, right? Yes. That's the ammunition to, com- to confirm your own identity. But what, so to answer your question, what I did with him is he had his own versions and, you know, 
for confidentiality. I'm not going to say what each of his were, yeah. but we, we all have the same things. So, you know, I've, I've delineated basically 10 constraints that we all live within. So I'm not enough being one of them. So then we'll investigate when I'm with someone, I'll investigate the validity of that. Like, you know, is it true? Like, is it an actual universal truth that you're not enough? Or is that just something you feel and you believe and you've got some sort of evidence for, right? So it's convincing. And obviously the older someone is and the more they've believed that, then the more ingrained those patterns are. But most of the, you know, my clients are in their 20s to 50s. You know, I do have some on either side, younger kids and then older people. But, you know, they, they're not completely stuck in their ways yet. And they recognize, oh, wait, no, that's not actually a truth. It's just basically how I felt about myself for a long time. But there's a very powerful distinction between feeling something and it being a truth, right? I've often said our feelings are a lousy indicator of truth. So just because you feel something doesn't mean it's going to go that way. Like how many times do people feel scared about an outcome? And it's like, you go through it and it's like, oh, it wasn't as bad as I thought. Well, further evidence that you've got a shitty ability to project and understand what's going to happen, right? Comes back to my three words of, I don't know what's going to happen. So Mm -hmm. let's just see what happens. So uh, for people struggling at home, it's the process of investigation, So whatever you're dealing with, I promise you, it's going to be more symptomatic, right? It might be a relationship problem. It might be a health problem. It might be a finance or career problem. But I guarantee you the quote-unquote problem lives within a a tighter context, which is the subconscious story you have, one of which is I'm not good enough. So if someone might be dealing in a relationship issue where they're not in a relationship, they'd like one, or they're in a relationship and they don't see, they don't feel seen or respected, then that might create some, you know, obviously some tension and some stress and some frustrations and resentments. But who are you in the way you show up in that relationship that perhaps you tolerate the absence of love, the absence of reverence, the absence of kindness? That could only happen for somebody who doesn't have a lot of self-worth. Otherwise, if you had a lot of self-worth, you would have attracted someone who does revere you, does see you. Or if you did attract someone who doesn't, you'd be out. Mm. (laughs) You know, with all due respect, you're like, you know, take a hike, buddy. I'm going to find someone who knows how amazing I am. Right. So, so it's, it's seeing how the symptoms can be reverse engineered into, okay, well, what must I be saying about myself that I'm tolerating whatever the circumstance is? And then investigating the validity of that statement. And I promise you, it's always not true. It's just something you believe. But if you believed it for 20, 30 years, it's just really convincing. That's the issue. Yeah, that's true. It is. It's never true. No, no. I tell, I tell people the only thing that I actually still currently believe to be a truth is gravity. And I'm still working on busting that yeah, one. Yeah, <laughs> sure. If anyone can, Peter Crane, that's you. <laughs> Thank you, my dear. Why <laughs> do we need the shade and the light, the duality of life? Um, I mean, in a simple experience, a simple, a simple answer um, experience can only happen through relativity, mm. right? Um, and I love using, you know, real analogies or life stories. Yes. So when I was um, in the same rent control apartment as I was telling the story earlier, you know, I would go for a run or do whatever my version of workout is. And this day it was a run and I was either going or coming back. I can't remember at which end it was, but either way I was stretching my calf muscles up against the wall. And to stretch, I just basically put my toes up against the baseboard and then I was leaning up against the wall. So you can imagine, I mean, it's not rocket science just to stretch my Achilles. And for whatever bizarre reason, perhaps life, because it was teeing me up for these wonderful examples and uh, analogies, 
my face was so close to the wall and that patch of wall was so uniformly painted. Like even though it was a pretty shitty apartment, but for whatever reasons, it was a, maybe an amazing painter who worked on that building. And this was so uniform, there were no aberrations. There was no little bubble of air or a little mark or a black dot. It was just purely unified. And what I got was this sudden sensation of disorientation. I started to actually feel a bit nauseous. And I don't know if you ski or snowboard, but you know, you have a whiteout condition mm. where the cloud coverage and the snow color is so the same that you, you, you can't really get a sense of depth perception. Yes. And it can be very disorienting. So at that moment, just because of the way my mind works, I was like, wow, if it weren't for diversity to, you know, dark and light yeah. to use your very, you know, just obviously very clear contrast then we don't have an experience. And so consciousness, people will often talk about, oh, we're all one and that's very Pollyanna-ish and beautiful and I'm not denying it. But it's only because of con contrast that we have an experience. If you're lying in bed and, you know, I don't know if you're married or you have a boyfriend, but usually men run hot. And, you know, and so if you're cold and you get closer to him or her or whoever, like, you know, you, you feel some warmth, but only by relativity of the fact that you were previously cold, <laughs> right? So it's like having that contrast is what gives rise to an experience. Mm. Why is that pivotal? Well, because if you don't have an experience, you can't discover your own true nature, which is what I assert we're all here for, which is to awaken to the essence of who we are. Yes. But that's the whole idea of love and pain sometimes as well. Yeah. Yeah, yin and yang, male, female, right, wrong, good, bad, up, down. Like, you know, there's the gamut of these um, opposites, mm. right? And um, I think it is, you know, incredibly well designed so that we get to have that world of duality. And then as far as my work is concerned, and certainly my studies, uh, it is transcending duality, that non-dualism, where we discover the unity that lies beyond. Yes. So the circle contains the yin and the yang, right? It's not either or, they both exist, but they're in within the bigger construct, which is the unity, the, the love, the harmony, mm. the oneness, whatever you want to call it. Time is a very humanly construct. How does changing our relationship with time change our life? I love how you come with these very simple questions there. <laughs> I was doing a lot You're of research awesome. on you um, before before our interview today. No, no, I love it. I love it. We're like uh, <laughs> brothers and sisters from other mothers. Um, so time is, yes, time and space. Uh, and I mean, it's a perfect follow-on from your conversation or your question about contrast or black and uh, dark and light. So time and space are really the construct within which we travel. Right. If it weren't for time and space, we don't get the world of relativity. Yeah. Again, sort of that being time and space to me are very much like the mirror in which we get to see ourselves. So I actually did a, a workshop at the beginning of the year on time itself. It's that profound of a topic to understand. There's linear time, which of course is just what it is. We're not going to change the fact that we are rotating around the sun, even though it looks like the sun goes up and the sun comes down. Obviously, that's illusory too, right? That's another mm. one of the lies that we fall prey to. But there is the procession that we call night and day, and then we call it minutes, you know, hours, days, whatever. But what 
I think your question speaks to, and certainly what I would say is our relationship to psychological time mm. is where there is a incredible transition from suffering, which I assert is emotional, psychological suffering. Pain is pain. You know, if I stub my toe on a you know, kitchen table, it's going to hurt. Or if I got a toothache, there's pain. But suffering is something that I feel is optional once you're aware of it. Until you're aware of it, it's not optional, for which reason there's no blame. I tell, you know, I always say people can't be held accountable for that which they're oblivious to. Yes. And most people are oblivious to why they suffer, for which reason we have compassion or we'd like to have compassion. So suffering is invariably because we're associated with time in some regard, a past event that we yet have pro yet to process or a future event that we're concerned about, right? In lay terms, something in our history that could give rise to guilt or shame or frustration or anger, these past-based emotions versus future, which is invariably the anxieties, the fears, the worries, the concerns, the apprehensions, right? So th that gamut of sweeps is really suffering. Mm. And so if you want to get rid of suffering, which last I checked is everybody, yeah. <laughs> at least that seems to be why I'm so popular, is getting rid of suffering. And to step into freedom, then we have to change our relationship to that psychological time, meaning I need to reconcile my history and the events of my life that I didn't yet process. And oftentimes, invariably, actually, most of those are subconscious, so you're, you don't know about them. That's why it's so insidious and people end up with these patterns, whether it be addiction or relationship problems or health problems, because they don't know what's driving mm. the show, right? It's stuff that got, they, they had an event when they were five or they were, you know, eight or they were 11 that was very traumatic or very difficult. And at that moment, they lost harmony with time. They were no longer in sync. Look at babies or certainly up to one or two years old. They're so present, you know, whether it's complete ecstatic joy or the miseries of a tantrum, they're in it. They're, they're not thinking about time. And then we get introduced to time by virtue of something that we experienced that was difficult and we didn't know how to process. And so we started the accumulation of what I call a severance of time, meaning we, we became, there was an aberration between where I am psychologically and where I am literally. And so unless you change that relationship, you're always going to be in some form of dis-ease, right? Uh, there's an absence of ease or peace, which then is the precursor to obviously how that manifests in, in our bodies and in our relationships. So, so time's pretty pivotal. Um, and to learn to have presence is, you know, something that people talk a lot about, but I think it's also a bit misleading when people say, oh, be in the now or be present. Mm. It's like an instruction but if someone hasn't processed what the hell they've been through, it's it's as asinine as me asking somebody to speak Chinese when they don't know how to. Yes. You know, it might sound good, but I, I don't know how. Well, because you still got things in the way of just being fully present now because you haven't been able to actually reconcile them. You touched before on suffering and the Buddha has that famous quote of all suffering is from having attachments. How? Yeah. How do we not find ourselves attached to things? It seems so hard. Um, it is. I mean, the human journey ain't easy, is it? I mean, you're obviously a pretty smart cookie and you've interviewed a lot of people and I'm guessing you still have your trials and tribulations. You Absolutely. know, you're not in the corner levitating. <laughs> um, or maybe you do that afterwards. I don't know. <laughs> I wish. Send me a video. I wish. <laughs> you beat me to like <laughs> exposing the lie about gravity. Um, 
Yeah, suffering is an inherent, you know, as you said, the four noble truths, like life is suffering, right? Mm. And they recognize that suffering is a byproduct of attachment or also desire, you know, wanting something. So desire, but desire is an interesting phenomenon, right? Because in lay terms, we could say wanting. Well, wanting itself creates time. So this goes back to your previous question, because if I want something, what am I saying? I don't have it. So now I'm actually perpetuating the idea of scarcity and that I'm missing something, which again is a complete falsehood. It's a pretense to the fact that I am everything. Mm. So there's the suffering is that who I am is everything, but I'm pretending I'm not, which creates the desire, which creates time. And now I have something in the future to chase the proverbial carrot. And so now you have the the vicious cycle that is the human uh, pursuit of happiness, as they call it in America, which is hysterical. You know, it's actually in the uh, Declaration of Independence, yes. I think. The pursuit of happiness. I'm like, well, perhaps why did you just stop pursuing shit and just be happy where you are? <laughs> so anyway, so yeah, suffering is somewhat inextricably connected to being human, but I would also assert it is the, um, the motivation to find freedom, right? If it weren't for my previous suffering, then how would I know the experience? Bliss, the exquisite bliss of freedom. People obviously want to achieve things and rise at whatever specialty yeah. they're doing and that kind of stuff. Is that still kind of wanting something? It can be. Um, I make the distinction of creating something. Yes. You know, it's very subtle and this is why I love language and words. Like I am profusely creative you know, prolifically creative. Like I, I love to create and yet I'm not attached to whether it works. Mm. And that gives me freedom. You know, with my athletes, I use the expression fully committed, totally unattached. I love that. And that's, you know, that ain't easy. Yeah. But that's a powerful place to be. I'm fully committed to what I'm doing and yet I'm not attached to the fruits of my labor or my outcome. You know, and I think there's, there's a line like that from, from Jesus, he had some good things to say too. But, you know, it's, <laughs> have you had him on your podcast? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, so, yeah, so that's, that's suffering is definitely a part of life, but I would say it's also um, the precursor to the, the joys of freedom. And then when you're in a state of freedom, rather than trying to get something as a compensation for something you think you're missing, you get to explore something and create something for the pure joy of creativity itself. Oh, I love that. I love that. Everything you say, Peter, is gold. Something I've been thinking a lot about recently, which I think you'll have a lot to say about, is the law of cause and effect. So, mm-hmm. you know, scientifically, every effect has a specific and predictable cause and every cause or action has a specific and predictable effect. Yeah. So everything in our lives is an effect that is a result of a specific cause. Yeah. And I feel that people don't understand this. They don't understand that their words have consequences their actions have consequences. Can you explain to us a bit about that? So one of the ways I break it down, as I say, I believe in cause and effect. I just don't know which one came first. So that will get people's noodles baked for a minute, right? So I believe in cause and effect. I just don't know which one came first. Because by that, what I'm saying is, if we look at this as an eternal journey, then was, you know, what apparently was the cause the that had the effect 
but was that's the effect of something else, mm. right? So there's this there's this perpetual domino effect that's called life. Oh yeah, well you know if you if you hadn't done this, I wouldn't got pissed off. Mm. Yeah, but why did they do that? And why is your reaction getting pissed off because of whatever the previous cause was and the fact that you'd learned that that's your reaction to a perceived threat, right? So so that's, first of all, the reason I in, in, invite people to at least entertain that is it gives people perhaps a bit more compassion with themselves and others that it's not always black and white. You yes. know, the bird landed on the branch and the branch broke. It's like, it's not because of the bird. You know, there's maybe there's not enough water in the soil or it's that time of year where the, the tree is shedding and it just so happened that was, quote, quote, the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back, yeah. right? So it just means that whenever anyone's going through something, we can perhaps afford them a little bit more space and compassion that you don't know the effect that you're seeing that might be associated with the cause that you're saying is like, really, you're, you're that angry about something so small, but you don't know the 20 other quote unquote causes that happened during mm. the course of the day that now has led to this sort of pressure cooker moment. Yes. Right. So that's one thing. Mm. Um, in terms of physics, I'm drinking water here. As far as your viewers know, could be gin, but we won't get into that. <laughs> I'm kidding. Gave that up a while ago. Uh, <laughs> once you find freedom, you realize, God, why would I poison myself? Well, anyway, so drinking water, that means that the, that could be a, you know, in the world of physics, I'm going to have to in 30, 45 minutes, an hour or something, go and use the restroom, yeah. right? Because water processing, da-da-da, kidneys, and I've got to urinate. That's just physics. So, so you start to understand that in terms of cause and effect. Um, so it really is, you know, it's just, uh, I've often been called a spiritual teacher, right? And, and, and that's fine. You know, I don't walk around with flowing robes and feathers and shit, but you know, like I am talking about the essence of who we are, which yeah. is a spiritual being having a human experience, but really I'm a physicist. I'm looking at physics. So if you're living in a mindset that is, I'm not enough, then as I said earlier, then the way that you think, feel, and act has to be inextricably connected to that. That's physics, mm. right? So that's cause and effect. Like why, what is the effect of someone having a dysfunctional relationship? Well, the underlying cause might be that they have for 30, 40 years never felt that they were loved or wanted. Mm. And that energy is the cause of why they would attract someone who equally sort of in their own way dismisses them, abuses them. Yeah. So there's many things that contribute to that. Right. So that's that's my take on cause and effect. Also, how important is, you know, people don't realise, I think, the consequences of their actions. So the things that they say could be gossiping or oh, yeah. their actions of not being kind. Yes. Yeah. So that would still be the principles of physics. Like, yeah. you know, we're getting deep here, which is obviously your desire and mine Absolutely. too, which I love. So we're in, we're in a vibrational universe, right? Yeah. So, and that's just, again, that's based on my point about being a physicist. Mm. Like if you talk to a physicist who could be completely nerdy, couldn't give a shit about spirituality, but he understands the unified field, entanglement theory, all of this stuff, then he'll say that basically, you know, the space between the center of a, a cell, you know, the, the nucleus in the electron, it, it's, it's so vast that there's almost like there's nothing there, but there's this vibration. Mm. So why language to me is so pivotal is... If we look at music as a, as a quick segue, 
everyone can understand listening to a piece of music, going to a concert, which, you know, obviously no one has gotten the joy of doing for a while, but you listen to music in your home or, you know, you listen to your husband or your wife singing in the shower and they have very different effects yes. you know, based on the vibration that you're hearing, right? You listen to some classical music, you listen to some Metallica, whatever rocks your yeah. boat, whatever you're into, but it's going to give a vibratory state. You know, if you go to a spa and it's all this like sort of David Pramel and it's like, um, you know, and it's like you start to feel a little different. You're like, you don't, you know, you're very quiet and you want to sit and breathe. And that music has a vibration that is going to inspire a different way of feeling and then consequently action. Yeah. Words to me are no different. The tone with which someone speaks and the words that they use carry a vibratory state. And this is why even in the course of our conversation, I've adjusted words slightly, you know, like you said, control, and I was saying responsibility. These are different words, but they carry a different vibration. And to me, it's pivotal because for that reason, it will elicit a different outcome. Yeah. So if people are sloppy with their language, which is one of the first things that I will do when I work with someone, they know not to mess around with me in terms of their declarations of what they're going to do. Not because I'm like a military sergeant, but because I want them to understand how powerful their words are and that their words are creating the reality. Mm. So if somebody says they're going to call me at three and they call me at 3.05, no one died, but that doesn't work for me, right? Because you, you're recognizing your words as what you said, but your actions aren't in alignment. Mm. So then when you tell me that you want to make a lot of money or you want to be in shape or you want to have a beautiful relationship, what's the difference? You know, you, you, you haven't learned to honor what you're saying so you might say, well, it's only 305. I'm like, I know, but you also only want to have a lot of money and only want to have an amazing relationship. So why the hell would I believe those words if you can't even keep on time? Yeah. Right? So then people are like, oh, I never looked at it like that. I'm like, no, <laughs> precisely why your life doesn't work. <laughs> that <laughs> so, makes so much know, sense. To me, language is so powerful and people are so irresponsible with it. Again, not through fault, but because they haven't made the connection. There's no blame. Yeah. But it's like when you wake up and go, holy shit, I, how many times have I said I'm going to do blah, 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 and I didn't? And then you wonder why you feel like a failure. Yeah. This is the number one thing I get from parents. And I love helping parents because I just think it's such a... It's such an incredible task that people take mm. on. And it's, you know, oftentimes, especially for mothers without, uh, it's very, very little, if any, acknowledgement or, you know, gratitude. But they're often asked the question, why do my kids not listen to me? And I'll say, well, it's quite straightforward. See, kids don't understand yet the language of manipulation and pretense that we see so, you know, so replete amongst adults, unfortunately. Um, but... A kid will hear you say something that is a promise for something good or a threat for something bad, but then it's not actually completed. It's not followed through upon, right? You know, if you do this, then you'll get that. And if you do that again, then you're going to receive this, you know, discipline. And for whatever reason, the parent gets busy or they let it go and they don't do it. And I said, so what you're actually teaching your children is that your words don't mean anything. And they're like, fuck. <laughs> I said, so how often do you make promises and threats? They're like, I don't know, a few a day. I'm like, okay, well, now you know why your kids don't pay attention. Wow, <laughs> yeah. that makes so much sense. Touching on kids, how do yeah. we allow our children who live in their subconscious mind up until the age of six or seven, 
before the conscious mind kind of takes control, how do we allow them to live, to wire their subconscious mind for allowing them to have the best possible life? You got to do the work. Do you have kids? Yes. Yeah, so you got to you got to do the work. Whoever's a parent has got to do the work in terms of recognizing where am I out of, you know, alignment with the things that we're discussing. Because kids, you know, I use this expression it was, it was borrowed from a yoga teacher friend of mine. He was about to have his first child and he had asked one of his peers like who was a dad already. He said, "Hey, what's what's, you know, one piece of advice for a new to be dad?" He said, I'll tell you this. He said, your kids will invariably never succeed at listening to you, but they will always succeed in becoming you. Because kids mimic. You are the role model and the archetype. And so they, you know, the mirroring, and this is one of the reasons I have issue with the bullshit around masks, use my French, but, you know, like you can't see the mirror neurons that we get to see in someone's face by virtue of seeing their face. Now we can only see eyes. People are already scared shitless because of all the propaganda that's been pumped out there. But now you can't even see people. So you don't get to recognize, was that person like grimacing? Are they smiling? Like, you know, so it creates even more of a potential threat. So kids are always looking. I mean, whenever you had your kid or kids, you remember as a baby, you know, your daughter's son, they would recognize your expression before anything that you ever said you know, oh, hi, goo, 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 and what did we do? Like they're, they're picking up on that facial recognition. So kids are incredible at like mimicking us, you know, or parents, I'm not a parent, but, you know, they, so that's why it's so imperative that if you want your child to live a life of freedom, that you emulate that, that you have love, that you have integrity with the things that you say, that you have self-worth in the way that you take care of yourself, such that they go, oh, okay, that's how a human being lives. Sadly, most children live in a hostile environment. That's a strong word. Mm. But from the perspective of a child, even the subtlest form of abandonment inspires a feeling of dismissal. And that's abuse, as far as I'm concerned. I have a very broad uh, definition of abuse. But for a child, as soon as they get like this momentary sense of you're not wanted, which could be as simple as you're not listening to them. Mummy, 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 mummy. You know, this constant, like, now I get it. I'm not saying any of this is easy. I just want people to understand the physics, right? Like you're, you're preparing dinner, you're on a Zoom call, you're trying to do something, you're having a conversation with your spouse. You know, there's a lot of moving parts that warrants the distraction or the ignorance of your child until such time that you're like, okay, what is it? And then even then when you turn around, the tone might be offensive or scary to a child. So there has to be, as far as I'm concerned, when I help parents, there are these pivotal pillars you've got to understand about parenting. You need your time, especially mothers, to be able to take care of yourself, fill your bucket, do some self-love so that one, you emulate that. Two, then you have the energy to be there but really be with your children. You know, it's so cliche. Don't They don't give a shit about whatever fancy gadget you got. Invariably, it's the old cliche of them playing with the box, right? They want to be with you more than anything. And so be with them. That's, a, that's an expression of presence. It goes back to our conversation about time. If you're literally with your child physically, but mentally you're thinking about what happened or what you've got to do tomorrow, they may not consciously know it, but they're going to feel it. You know, and, and so many people I talk to, they're like, oh, you know, my dad was always just busy and, 
And then they wonder why they have quote unquote daddy issues. You know, it's like, and it's not that he was a bad dude. He's trying to, you know, make money, keep the roof over the head, put food on the table, all of the things, all of the things, they're all valid. And if you want to be an extraordinary parent, then just recognize to what degree are you not truly present with your children and are you not listening? What? For those of us who... How's that? that? But that is amazing. (laughs) For those of us who may not have ticked all those boxes and our kids are a certain age, if we take on what you've said, are we able to help them out a bit? No, totally screwed. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, of course. It's just the degree to which we have these habits that become more and more ingrained over time. The more resistance there is, the more like you know effort it takes to quote unquote get out of those trenches of the neuro pathways that we've established. So certainly, when you've got young kids, then yes, don't be hard on yourself. You know these uh, conversations. Uh, I hope will become more, um, you know, uh, available mm. to children. Even I have a, a friend I've helped a client in India. And she wants to get my work into the school curriculums. Like, can you imagine? I mean, that'd be incredible, incredible. where children are learning about the, the distinctions of the mind and how it works and how we relate and how we communicate and how our words create our reality. So, you know, to what degree that ever happens, I don't know. But I'm certainly committed to doing that. And even if I can't in schools, maybe in colleges, they can have different programs. So, yes, give yourself a break. You're a mom doing, you know, you're obviously a working mom. You do the best you can. And so that's where I said, we've got to have compassion and we're all works in progress. So if people listen to this and they're like, wow, maybe they can instill a little bit of what I'm saying. It doesn't have to be perfect, but maybe they just that night that they listen to this, they really be with their child and just see what happens. They'd be like, wow, it's a miracle. My child went to sleep easier or they were less cranky because they, 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 they got some attention. They, they, they were held you know, as I said earlier, in a way that maybe they hadn't felt before, which is reassuring to a child. So certainly can be undone. And even, even you know, for a little bit more of a respite for people who are worried about it, every human being's here for their own journey, right? Yeah. So even if you're the quote, quintessential perfect parent who's listening, who's paying attention, who's present, who's emulating all of these beautiful character traits, all of it, doing your son or your daughter has still got to go through their own versions of overcoming suffering and constraint. So, you know, at best you can mitigate it. I wouldn't say you could eradicate all of it. You talk quite a bit about heartbreak and we spoke about that slightly at the beginning. I want to touch on it a bit more. Heartbreak's obviously such a hard thing for so many people. What do we do and how do we deal with a lover or even a friend who has broken our heart, who has moved on and we still feel the pain? Um, I mean, it's a great question. And again, just because, you know, we're we're fast friends. We've known each other for all of an hour, but I feel I can speak to you directly. Yes. You know, um, your question's inaccurate, right? So... No one's ever broken your heart mm. unless someone's literally got like an ax and like put it through your sternum and <laughs> which you look pretty together to me. So I think you're all right. <laughs> so, I'm okay. I'm you know, okay. the expression broken. Yeah. Um, the broken heart is, you know, it's melodramatic. It's romantic. It's contextual. Mm. I get it. But to me, a broken heart is an open heart. So, you know, I once did a workshop, uh, this is many years ago, and it was about relationships. And someone asked me a question. They said, God, like, you know, you just seem so at peace. You seem so happy. Like, how can I get there? 
you know, and I'm always a bit of a smart ass. I said, here's the answer. Fall madly in love with somebody and then I hope they leave you and completely shatter your heart, <laughs> right? So that, because yeah, yeah. that's the opening, you know, where you find love. So It reminds me of the Rumi quote, the wound is the place where the light enters you. Yes, beautiful. Absolutely. So a broken heart is an open heart and invariably, it's not until such time that we have our heart broken. Again, we're just playing with words yeah. here. Um, that we actually get the experience of what love is, right? So in your in your question, whether it be a loved one or a friend that leaves you, even the connotation of leave you, they didn't, they didn't leave you, they went wherever they went, right? They went to the bathroom, they went to the living room, they went to a different town. <laughs> like, you know, that's your story that, well, it hurts if you think they left me versus no, they, they moved to Perth. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that's, that's what happened. You know, so, right? Those are the facts. Yeah, exactly. So that's, yeah. So what happened? Like you said, oh, you know, friend that I missed, they moved, they moved to Sydney. You know, it's like, okay, great. So yeah, I get it. I'm playing with you so we can bring some yeah. light, relief, light relief because oftentimes when people are struggling, that's what they need. But in terms of the energetics of what's happening. Yes, of course, my own story, the girl that left me, I fell apart, I couldn't sleep, I was depressed. That could We could say that was my broken heart until I got, oh, no, actually, that was life taking care of me because I was living in a world of fear of loss, which is a miserable way to live. I didn't know it. And I was a very happy, vital, vibrant human being doing well. But there was this sort of, you know, constraint that I was oblivious to that was holding me back from bigger potential. So I would assert that if someone quote unquote leaves you, or there is some heartache, you know, you're, mm. you're upset, you miss someone, you're, you're sad. First of all, there's organic feelings. Let's not suppress those. If you're sad, you miss someone. When my dad died, you know, it would be completely asinine if I was to say, no, no problem. He just died. You know, of course I've got human feelings. I was very sad. I missed him for a lot, long time. So we got to be able to distinguish between in, in inherent innate feelings, which are beautiful, versus emotions that get created over time that are really revealing some sense of inadequacy about yourself, right? Oh, they 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 left me. Okay, that might be quote unquote the the story of what happened. But if that hurts, it might be because you feel you're not lovable. Mm. Ooh, well, now we're into your story. Not this has got nothing to do with them. It could have been Bob. Dick or Harry, it wouldn't have made any difference. It's not, you don't miss Bob, you know, so you're worried that you're, you don't, no one loves you, you know, and that's because when you were five, your, your sibling got more attention than you and you made it mean that, do you see what I'm saying? You, yes. You've got to be able to recognize the different layers of what's actually going on. So I, to, to finish, you know, in regards to that question, I would say the beauty, the beauty of having your heart quote unquote broken is that now as a human being, you have the opportunity, I don't want to say you have to, but you have the opportunity to learn to love. Because if it weren't for that, you don't have to learn the capacity to love the part of you that is currently suffering. Yes. So it's still a gift. I find that a lot of people in those situations find it so hard to let go. Like mm -hmm. they, they could have been in a relationship two years ago and mm -hmm. the person left them to go to Perth and um, everyone's going to Perth and they still <laughs> and they still they still might go on about them or yeah. they they are unable to kind of move on what what would you say to someone who is in that situation um, they're living a lie. They don't understand the nature of life. You know, they're not trusting. There's the absence, really. The main quality is the absence of trust that in ways that perhaps they don't understand right now. That's precisely what was supposed to happen. It's one of my 
I gave more popular quotes, you know, I write in quotes. Yes. And the one that's been propagated the most around the social media webs is uh, that what happened happened and couldn't have happened any other way because it didn't. Yeah, it's the best. Right. What happened happened and couldn't have happened the other way because it didn't. Right. So it's a little bit in your face, but it's also very powerful when you go, oh, okay. It's not to deny the fact that you miss them or you're sad, but it couldn't have happened the other way because it didn't. And you, you may not have the conscious understanding or the justification or the realization as to why yet, but maybe in a week, maybe in a month, you will. Maybe once you energetically let go, like I said to your question about, you know, you can't create the life of someone you don't yet perceive yourself to be. Once you let go of the version of you, that was attached to that person and you raise your vibration in the way that you've learned to accommodate and accept that life is doing something on your behalf, it might not seem like that, then there is a greater sense of trust from which you attract a different circumstance that all of a sudden explains the previous one. It's like, oh, then the next best, whatever it is, it's a partner, it's a job, it's, you know, shows up because you have communed with life in a way that you're not the center of the universe. Like, again, I I find it so audacious that anybody thinks they know how life should go. Mm. I mean, it's like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, I didn't get the memo that you're in charge of the universe yeah. and that person shouldn't have left you. It's like, I mean, it's <laughs> when you really look at it, it's kind of comical. It's like, I mean, there's an intelligence at play that when you cut your finger, something like magical happens and it heals. Like you don't do anything. I mean, you might put some like neosporin and and maybe a Band-Aid on it or something, but but otherwise there's a genius to life that allows that finger to heal. I mean, that's that's like magic. So maybe consider that that intelligence is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And if the events of your life aren't unfolding perfectly in accordance to mighty old you, Maybe, just maybe, there's a deeper intelligence that's also doing that and perhaps have a little more humility and trust that things are actually right on track. And I've also heard you say that that you, when we find ourselves in challenging situations or people come into our lives that show an area of us that is a lot of the time unhealed when we get affected by their actions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, again, my quotes, it's just how I speak. That's what comes through me. It's how my mind works. I say life will present you with people and circumstances to reveal where you're not free. Mm. I love that. And that's very profound when you get it. Mm. Thank you. So, you know, you get a particular circumstance or a particular individual, and if you're triggered by either or both, often the case, then what it's actually revealing is where you're not free, which goes back to what we've been discussing throughout this conversation, which is if you're in a state of fear, constraint, inadequacy, insecurity, some mindset of scarcity, then you are fundamentally lying to the inherent nature of your completeness, your wholeness, your boundless nature. And so that's going to trigger you because you're like me, the girl leaving was a trigger for the fact that I hadn't reconciled the fact that I wasn't free around the perception of something of value not being in my life, mm. aka mom and dad, right? But there's no freedom there because that's the nature of life. I didn't want them to die when I was seven and 17. That's pretty, you know, it's a bit of an anomaly, but still that's apparently what was meant to happen. Why? Because that's what happened. And I can still be crying and I can still miss them, but life is doing life. Yes. 
The degree to which I'm not in harmony to life is the degree to which I'm going to suffer. Mm -hmm. So when I get triggered or anyone gets triggered by an external circumstance, it's an opportunity to see where I'm not in alignment with the fact that life is doing what it's doing. Therefore, I'm saying I'm not free. And fundamentally, at an even deeper level, what I'm saying is I'm not okay with the way things are. Okay, well, how's that working out for you? Because <laughs> things are always the way they are, yeah. but only always. <laughs> well, that's it. I mean, when I realised that life happens for you, not to you, it changed my life. Yeah, of course. You're a beneficiary of it, not a victim. Yes. Yeah, but that's a, that's a profound shift and it's not an easy one because most people are walking around the planet in a state of fear and they're very scared. Therefore, yes. everything does come across as a potential threat. And that's, you know, and there's compassion to be had for that. I get it. I get it. People right now, particularly right now with all of the, you know, again, BS, I don't want to get into politics, but like millions of people's lives have been ruined by whatever agenda is going on. And it's difficult. You know, mm. they've lost jobs. They can't see loved ones. They can't go to wherever they want to go to. And that definitely feels like victimhood. And mm. it's difficult to be able to find some semblance of acceptance. I think we have to be a stand for our freedom and our civil rights. But at the same time, you know, in the bigger scheme of things, what's going on here really? And I think it's revealing a lot of the dysfunction that is in all of these industries, whether yes. it's politics, sick care, it's not healthcare at all. It's got nothing. They have no interest in people being well. They don't make money off people being healthy. Agriculture, education, all of these systems are dysfunctional, you know? And I think a lot of people are waking up to seeing the, you know, that some of these industries are pretty sinister, honestly. Yes. Peter, how do you define freedom? Um, it's, it's a good question. And you'd think I'd have a stock answer giving it's my number one product. Um, there's different ways I could answer it. There are synonyms. So I could say freedom is love. Freedom is peace. Um, my quote, again, that I use, I say true freedom is when you have nothing to hide and nothing to prove. The best. <laughs> These are all going to be in my books. I hope people at least honor the copyright. <laughs> what, what is the most mystical experience you have ever had? Oh, that's a great question. Um, there's been a couple. Um, one's playing golf, of all things. Um, and this was, this was a while ago now. This is probably about 20 years ago. This is probably soon after I kind of had my own revelation and stepped out of my own way. I was playing golf and there was a moment where I couldn't discern where I finished and life started. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, invariably walking around, like we think we're this isolated unit with arms and legs and like I'm here and you're over there. And this yeah, is yeah. this illusion of separation, which is to me one of the most devastating lenses that people look through because then you have to be in a state of survival. So it really was the merging of the illusion of separation of myself from anything else. What yeah. do you think it was? You were so present in the moment. How, why do you think it came about then? I mean, maybe because I just flushed my five iron to like about two feet on the green. I, <laughs> I can't even remember the shot I hit. I'm kidding. Um, no, there was just there was just a. Again, I think I would speak to the absence of the idea of myself. So there was no I that was worried about my shot or what my you know 
friends were doing or what was happening or what's my score going to be. And I was just truly fully engaged in that moment, that step, the feeling of the slight softness of the grass under my shoe or the sense of the air. And there was, again, it was just emerging because I was fully engaged with what was going on. So it was a combination of like, yes, presence, but presence to me is the byproduct of you not being there, <laughs> which sounds like an oxymoron, but. <laughs> What's the best advice that you've ever been given? I guess I'd have to cite my dad just because I loved him so much, you know. He, it's a story when I was 14, um, I worked, I didn't work, I was at a school where they had the British Open golf near, they have the cycle, they play St. Andrews and all of these big courses for the British Open. But my school was in this place called Sandwich and there's a course called Royal St. George's, which is very near the course, uh, near the school. And so, you know, they came to the school and they wanted to get a few boys and girls to be litter, litter kids, you know, so you'd walk around with your little wooden stick and you'd pick up litter just to keep the place, you know, spick and span. So I was one of the litter kids and it was fun, you know, 13, 14 year old. And there's like all these icons like Nick Faldo and all these old golfers and whatever, and Greg Norman from Australia. (laughs) So, um, um, but you know, kids being kids, we were just messing around and sit on the grass, we'd eat our sandwiches and we went into the merchandise tent and, um, you know, I'm, I'm revealing my childhood here, but I, you know, I, 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 I nicked a, a, a box of, uh, golf balls because I wanted to impress my friends. Cause one of my buddies was urging us all on to do it. Yeah. You know, we're 13, 14, yeah, right? Yeah. But because I was pretty smart, I did it in a way that no one noticed. So when it came out and I could show off to my friends one way to try and get value from my peers, they're like, oh my God, how'd you do that? Let's go do it again. Because we're children and we're idiots. You know, so, so, so we went to do it again. So you can imagine whoever the man was or woman who was overseeing that particular stand, they're going to know, oh, here's the same bunch of idiots, you know, so they might keep a better eye on them. And so, of course, I got caught the second time. Yeah. So for whatever reasons, you know, God, God, God bless him, you know, like we're kids, we're just doing what kids do, which is stupid hmm. stuff. So, and it's a sleeve of balls, which at the time were probably like, you know, a couple of bucks. So anyway, he pulled me to one side. He said, look, I'm, obviously I'm not going to call the police, give me back the balls, um, but I'm going to have to call your parents which of course to a child is actually far worse than having to speak to the law. <laughs> so, yes. so coming back to the advice, so I came home and my dad, you know, who was just, he was just such a special man. He took me into, my mum had already passed, but took me into his bedroom and he got down on one knee because I'm only small and uh, he looked me in the eye and he said, this is exactly what he said. He said, if you want a golf balls, just tell me, I'll get you some. And then he said, you know what's right and wrong. Mm. That was it. You know, and even though I don't necessarily, you know, subscribe to the world of right and wrong, what he taught me was integrity. Mm. It was very impactful because, first of all, many kids at that time in our generation would be scolded or hit or sent to their room. And, you know, I was never once hit, you know, and I, I... I think that would be another form of advice for a parent, which I know is not easy because, you know, you're, you, they, kids will test your nerve, you know. And, um, but he never did. He just loved me, you know. And that, that was one of those moments where a great piece of advice, which is, you know, what's right and wrong. And, I, and as sad as it is to say, 
there's a lot of wrong going on in the world right now. Yeah. And there's a lot of abuse, you know, in all realms, not just with the politicians and all the bullshit. And, but, you know, behind closed doors, the sex trafficking, the, the spouse that is hitting his or her spouse and their children. And, you know, it's, if there's one thing I hope to do in my lifetime, it is to reveal, not even reveal, I don't care to see it, but to remove and to liberate people from the need to have any abuse in their life. What is a life of greatness to you? Um, I'd say in three words, uh, life of love. <sighs> truly, truly being a human being who not under, just understands love, but emulates love, who displays love, and in their very essence is love. And now love itself warrants a, you know, probably another podcast just to unpack what love is, but it's the, the, the beauty of aligning with everything the way it is and accepting everyone for who they are. It is a reverence of life. It's a, it's an honoring of the fact that somebody that you may not know, you may never even meet, you don't understand why they do what they do, but there's a, there's a respect. And as I said, a reverence for any sentient life, um, I think that would be a life of greatness and that would certainly be a very different planet that we lived on. Peter Crane, you are the brightest shining light. Thank you so much for the conversation today. Oh, thank you. That means a lot coming from you. For more inspiration and wisdom, I would love you to join me and my community on Instagram at a Life of Greatness podcast. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, and watch videos on this and other episodes, head to sarahgrimberg.com. Love what you heard? Then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast. Download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.